Let's pray. Help us to be attentive now to you, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our midst and with us. Give us ears that are good to hear and eyes that are able to see the things that you would have us see, know, and understand. Give us hearts that are good and fertile soil soil to receive your word. Plant within us things that will grow and that will blossom and that it will bring you joy. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words in any way stray from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. This morning we are reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verse 1, starting at verse 1. Listen closely. This is the word of God. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them all this parable. And Jesus goes on to tell those who were gathered around him a story about a shepherd who lost a sheep and about a woman who lost a coin. And then he gets to this third story in his big parable, and it goes like this at verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had from his father set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead And is alive again, he was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And this may be the grandest of all of Jesus' parables. And it goes on for another eight verses. And for the sake of time, and because this part of the parable very much can stand on its own, we're going to stop right there this morning. But to tell you the truth, I continue even with this small part of Jesus' grander parable that makes up chapter 15 in Luke's gospel, continue to be overwhelmed by this parable despite having read it, known it, heard it my entire life. The last couple of weeks, we have looked at a couple of prominent and better-known parables of Jesus. This one may be the best known, 
and it may be the most important, and it has layer after layer of truth and grace. It is a continual feast and nourishment and encouragement for anyone who will listen. I had a conversation with one of you this week, and we talked about how in so many parables of Jesus, there are multiple interpretations and multiple meanings multiple ways that God speaks to us. We're going to look at really one of those this morning. Jesus says that there's a father and he has two sons. There were probably a wife or a stepmother or sisters or daughters or other brothers maybe even in this family, in this household, under this roof. Jesus simplifies it, boils it down for us into really only the people that we need to know about for the sake of his point. There was a father and two sons, the younger son who would have had lower standing in the family system of that day, unlike today where all children are equal. Nevertheless, this son says to his father, no, he demands, give me my fair share of the estate, your estate, which was was very much an audacious ask in that day as it would be today. The son is saying to the father, you are dead to me. You've raised me, provided for me, cared for me, sheltered me, given me everything I need or want up to this point in life, and now you are dead to me. I want what will rightly be mine one day. I want it now. You are dead to me. And those hearing Jesus' parable for the first time would have been shocked that a younger son in this culture where elders were greatly respected, shocked at the younger son's request But they would have been equally, if not more, shocked later in Jesus' story when the Father complies. When the Father gives the Son what he asks for. Any normal father, at a minimum, would have sent the Son to his room without dinner. (laughs) Or maybe would have banished him, banned him from the family compound and said, never come back, you are not welcome here. You are persona non grata for your audaciously disrespectful request. But Jesus tells us that this father was different. He gives when people ask. He doesn't turn away from people, except to turn the other cheek. And he always, always loves. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, thy will be done. And this father's a little bit like that. He returns the favor. He allows his children to express their will and says, whatever you will, may it be done. Giving them that freedom in love. Even if what the child wants, requests, wills, demands is unsafe, not wise, not good. The father loves that much that he grants that freedom. And so the son heads out with his bags of money and with his freedom. And he seemingly goes as far away from his home and his father as he could go to a place of many pleasures, which sounds good. And he partied and he lived and he enjoyed and he consumed and presumably, presumably all of his desires were fulfilled. And then he had nothing. And then he was spent. And then he experienced really hard times. 
Things were so bad that he, a Jewish boy, found himself doing the unthinkable, feeding pigs, being with pigs, interacting with pigs. And he was not even permitted to eat the food that he was tasked with giving to the pigs. And then he remembered. And then this young man, this son, remembering that he was still a son, remembered. He remembered how things were at home. He remembered how things were under his father's roof. He remembered how things were under his father's care. He remembered how his father was. That he was not a harsh man, that he was not a mean man, that he was not a rigid man, that he was not an unforgiving man, not someone who holds a grudge or punishes harshly, but a person of generous love. Now many of us here this morning have all had a father. Some of us maybe didn't know our father, but all of us have had a father. And some of our fathers have been harsh, were harsh, were angry or mean or rigid or demanding or abusive or alcoholic or absent or unaccepting were all kinds of ways that maybe the ideal perfect father wasn't. And maybe we think of father in those ways, in the ways that we grew up with our father. The father in Jesus' story is very different than that. And so the son takes a chance. He took a chance because he had no other hope, frankly, and he decided that maybe the best thing for him and the only option for him was to hang his head, to admit that he really was messed up, and to go groveling, begging, pleading, asking for mercy and for crumbs. For anything, he was that desperate. And he went And along the way, along that journey home, he rehearsed a thousand times what he would say, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then we have to use our imagination a bit because Jesus says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And it's hard to imagine exactly how that happened. Did the father have a big telescope on his front porch? And he's looking and watching, or has he stationed servants down the hill at the front gate of his large compound? Or has he sent out servants on reconnaissance missions to look for his son, and one of those servants gets back to the father before the son does? Or is the father well-known and his son so well-known in the area, in the region, that someone sees the son returning and just gets the, the message or the word to the father? Or was this simply the disposition of the Father that Jesus is speaking about? The disposition of the Father's heart all along, always watching, waiting, hoping, praying that his son would return and he was ready for him. And I'm going to go with that latter understanding. And whether the Father had a script or not that he rehearsed a thousand times, we do not know. What we do know is that there was no hesitation no hesitation. The father didn't say to the son, oh, you're back. We got a few things to settle. We got a lot to talk about. You're paying rent now. How are we going to settle up? 
No, the father didn't stay at his home office desk. He didn't continue to do whatever he was doing. No, Jesus tells us that he drops everything and that he runs and he runs and he runs. And he, maybe he's an old man, but he's sprinting, he's flying. And he grabs the son and he embraces him and he holds him and he spins around the emaciated boy. And he says, bring me, bring me the best robe. Whose robe was that? It was his robe. It was his very own robe, and the son begins what he had rehearsed a thousand times. I'm not worthy to be called your son, and his father says, enough, enough. Bring me some shoes, the best shoes. Bring me my rings. Bring me jewelry. Bring the best that we have. Kill the fatted calf. Get the grill going. We are having a party, and we're having the biggest party, and we're pulling no punches. We have no budget for this party. (laughs) Get rid of those dirty rags that you're wearing, son. Take them off now. They are memories. They are symbols of the past. And we're not talking about the past now. We're talking about that you're loved and you're home. And this story about a father and a son is really the third verse of a repeating parable that Jesus told and that Luke recounts in chapter 15 of his gospel. And in all three parables, something prized is lost and something prized is sought and something prized is found. And as a result of that thing being found, there's this huge party rejoicing in heaven in the first parable, rejoicing in the presence of angels and God in the second parable. And then this grandest of feasts, And in each case, something returns or is returned, a sheep to its flock or fold, a coin to its owner's purse, and a child to his parent. And Jesus repeatedly ties this returning or equates this returning with repentance, which sounds very religious to us and may even land on our ears with negative connotations. But for Jesus, in context, it's simply meant to return, to go back, to be back, to be reconciled, to be reunited, to be at home to return or to be returned, in this case, to the Father. That's why we ask this question in, when we baptize someone and when people become members of the congregation. Because the returning and the being back is really important. Being in the presence of the Father, being in the presence of the light of God is really important. It is our nature to gravitate to the darkness and to the distant land. But all of this repentance is only possible because the shepherd went looking for the sheep, the one sheep, because the woman searched her entire house, every corner of it, swept, moved, overturned, and because the father was waiting, because the father was going, because the father was ready, because the father never stopped loving. And while Jesus' threefold parable is about a sheep and a coin and a child returning, it is more importantly about a shepherd and a woman and a father who is searching, longing, wanting, hoping, waiting, watching, eager, ready for 
and full of compassion, prodigal compassion, extravagant grace, ridiculous generosity, overwhelming joy. We know this parable, this third one best as the parable of the prodigal son. But it's really not about a prodigal. Prodigal means recklessly, wastefully extravagant. Recklessly, wastefully extravagant. And it's really not about the prodigal son. It's about the prodigal father. And it should be called the parable of the prodigal father or the father who finds. When I was a young person, I remember hearing a sermon on this parable. And in the bulletin, it was written the title of the sermon, The Waiting Father. This is not about a waiting father. This is about a going father, a running father, a father who eagerly embraces, a father whose heart is broken and who will do anything and everything to have back in his household. He is not waiting on a lazy boy chair with his feet up on an ottoman. He is seeking, he is searching, he is wanting, he is longing for his son to be home, for his child to be back The sheep is found because the shepherd's looking. The woman finds her coin because she looks for it. The son returns home because the father is ready to welcome. The son can return because he knows his father's nature and his father's heart and his father's desire. There is a reason that tax collectors and sinners were always around Jesus, always gravitating to Jesus. Because in Jesus, they heard a story and they heard about a grace, not that overlooked their sin and their rebellion and their awfulness, but that loved them despite that. And it's really important to understand in this story for us this morning that the father loves the son before he repents. That our being loved by God is not dependent on our repenting. We dress up really well. We put on our Sunday best. We come into this space looking good, not wanting to look like sinners. We sh- we're doing this sort of considering renaming the church right now. Maybe we should rename the church the Church of Sinners because that would be really honest and that would be who we are. And that would point to the grace of God, which is how we live and our only hope. There's a, a prominent church in our area, and it, one of their sort of taglines is, we're imperfect people, which is nice. But it feels like it's an awfully close to a perfect person when I hear that. We're, we're perfect with a chink or two. We're like a diamond that glistens and glows and shines and is glamorous, but is an imperfect diamond, as all diamonds are. We are far from imperfect. We are wayward, disobedient. We have secrets that we don't want the people next to us, much less those behind us and in front of us, to know. Augustine said that a person, a man, fails privately, but long before he fails publicly. And so God knows all of this, though, And he doesn't ask us to come to him once we get good, once we get right, once we get loving. He says, come in your anger, come in your depravity, come in your dysfunction, come as you are right now. Don't wait until you're good to come home because you will never be good on your own. 
God loves us not as we should be, but as we are. Say that to the person next to you. God loves us not as we should be, but as we are. God loves us as we should be and not as we are. And so we can be honest about how we are. When we think that we have to wait until we're good, then we deny the gospel of grace and instead are embracing a gospel of being good. But no one is good, and grace is better than that. When we deny our sin, our brokenness, our frailty, all of our younger son's stuff, we deny the gospel of grace that says, you are loved and you are wanted at home exactly as you are, period. On the front of our bulletins this morning are these words from Brennan Manning. The good news means we can stop lying to ourselves. The sweet sound of amazing grace saves us from the necessity of self-deception. It keeps us from denying that though Christ was victorious, the battle with lust, greed, and pride still rages within us. As a sinner who has been redeemed, I can acknowledge that I am often unloving, irritable, angry, and resentful with those closest to me. When I go to church, I can leave my white hat, Lone Ranger, at home and admit I have failed. God only loves me as I am, but also knows me as I am. God not only loves me as I am, but also knows me as I am. Because of this, I don't need to apply spiritual cosmetics to make myself presentable to him. I can accept ownership of my poverty and powerlessness and neediness. Thank you, Zach Wilson, for reminding us of last week's memory verse. For it is by grace That you have been saved through faith and not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, not by goodness, not by our own power or strength or beauty or accomplishments or purity of heart or churchiness so that no one can boast. For you have been saved by grace. Say grace. It is the only gospel that is worth anything, the gospel of good works, the gospel of being good, the gospel of my goodness, of my getting better, is worthless, is worthless. And there is no hope in it, but there is joy and freedom and honesty and truth and celebration and reconciliation in a gospel that says, God loves you as you are. And not as you should be, because you will never be as you should be, this side of heaven. Let's pray. Our prayer of confession this morning, God, is not all about our sin and our brokenness and our secrets and our depravity but about our rejection of your gospel of grace and our attempts to work and strive and be good and better so that you might love us. If we have not gotten yet to the realization of the fallacy in that, take us to that place.
Remind us that all of our best works, as Isaiah wrote, are just rags. Dirty rags. And the point isn't that we are bad or awful, but that your grace is sufficient. That your grace loves us as we are and not as we should be or supposed to be or think we ought to be or strive to be or want to be but that you have loved us unconditionally. Help us, heal us, get us out of our religion that we might experience the fullness of your unconditional love, your mercy, your grace, your desire to restore and to heal and to be reconciled with you, our loving, running Father. These things we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.